You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. You may be seated and good morning to the 10 o'clock. We're in a series called Weak Made Strong and so much of 2 Corinthians is a reminder to us that we are weak and that we are frail and that we have so many vulnerabilities. And yet Christ is strong in us and Christ is strong for us. Paul is gonna remind the church here at Corinth that outwardly their bodies are just wasting away day by day. I, I feel that more than I ever have before. In fact, I was really proud of some of y'all in the 50 plus group all ago who could actually get your hand over your head to, to raise your hand up. Thought that was a, a good thing for all of us. But then Paul reminds the church of Corinth, yes, our bodies are, are wasting away. They're decaying is actually some of the, the translations. Our bodies are decaying. And yet, day by day, the Holy Spirit is renewing our lives, renewing our hearts, renewing our spirits. Even though outwardly we, we fail, even outwardly we're weak and growing weaker, and yet in Christ, in the power of the Spirit, He is renewing us, He is strengthening us day by day. So in your copy of God's Word, would you go with me please to 2 Corinthians chapter three. Hope you have your copy of God's Word with you today. If you've been here much this summer, you probably already had a ribbon there or a placement there. Hopefully you've even read ahead and you're always welcome to do that. 2 Corinthians chapter three. There's a lot of things happening here in, in this chapter. Remember that Paul has started the church here in Corinth. He was there for 18 months got it going, a lot of new believers. Uh, it was a growing church. And then he left. He had to go to Jerusalem and then went to Ephesus. And then he's gonna head back up eventually uh, to, to Northern Greece, to Macedonia. And it's from there that he is actually writing, uh, writing this letter. And, and while he's gone, some false teachers come onto the scene. They begin to enter, or if you will, infiltrate uh, the, the church there in Corinth, the believers there, there in Corinth. And they are, they're teaching a false gospel that said, yes, Jesus is good. He's, he's real good, but you need to add something to him. You need to, to add to him Jewish customs or some of the Jewish law, some of the Jewish Old Testament. It's, it's gonna be Jesus and you're gonna need something else. You're gonna need Jesus and some works. You're gonna need Jesus and you're gonna need to try a little harder. And so Paul comes up against this and begins to, to write about this. But let me kind of back up a little bit and give two kind of overarching statements that have a lot to do with, with chapter three of 2 Corinthians. Here's the first thing. Legalism is Jesus plus. Legalism is Jesus plus customs, plus rules, plus ceremony, plus ritual. And you could probably add a lot of other things in there as well. You know, it's Jesus plus he's gonna need my help a little bit. So Jesus plus is legalism. And that, that's, that's been the case really throughout the century since even the death and the resurrection of, of Christ. Maybe some of you grew up in a system of Christianity where it seems like Christianity was, was nothing more than a lot of rules that you had to follow. Maybe some of you even feel like you're still there today that, that Christianity is nothing more than, than, than ritual or, or ceremony or religious rules that have to be followed. You know, humans have a proclivity to always move toward rules because we have a hard time understanding grace. 
Most of us have a hard time understanding the concept of grace, and so we move toward, toward rules because we understand rules. We understand regulations so much better. We tend to often think, if I can just do things better over here, then I will have a closer or a better walk with God, or God will, will love me even more. But if I forget to do these things over here, or don't follow all these rules, and then God maybe, he doesn't love me as, as much or does not accept me as, as much. But you see, that reduces walking with God to just following some codes. And the problem is no one in here can keep all the codes. And because we can't keep the code, we can't keep all the rules, we can't keep the, 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 the ritualistic nature of religious Christianity, we get disappointed with ourselves, we get frustrated with ourselves, we get frustrated with others, we get frustrated with, with God or even disappointed with, with God. And then we kind of slip into this passive Christian experience we have no relationship with, with God and there's certainly no indwelling or movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the opposite of that is this, but the gospel is Jesus, period. I mean, this is Paul's big message really throughout all of his letters and I hope you hear it here at Highland all the time. We are saved because of God's grace toward us. And we believe by faith that Jesus has done all the work for us in his death and in his resurrection. Therefore, as New Testament believers, we rest on the accomplishments of Jesus. We rest in what Christ has done and we rest in who Christ is. This is the good news. This is the gospel. It is Jesus plus nothing, which equals everything. So chapter three is, is rich. Basically, you have the entire book of Hebrews found in this one chapter. So let's pick it up here. Second Corinthians uh, chapter three. Let's read the first three verses, one, two, and three. Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or even letters of recommendation from you? You yourselves, you are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. First of all, these false teachers have come in. And as they came in, they came in with, with quite literally these, these letters of recommendation, which would not be that much different than the letters of recommendation you either write for other people today or you ask from other people today. A letter of recommendation for a scholarship or for um, a job promotion or for entrance into a school or as you apply for, for a new job. Uh, th those are letters of recommendation. It's the same thing that was happening with these false teachers. They came in with these letters of recommendation, probably more than likely from Christians in Jerusalem um, or religious leaders in Jerusalem that said, you can trust these guys. Like they're, they know what they're talking about. They, they, here, here are the letters that we want to recommend them to, to you. And so they came into this, the church in Corinth bringing these, these letters. And so one of the letters that we've lost uh, to the church of Corinth, more than likely that, that question probably came up because Paul is responding to something that we don't really know about. And probably the question that came up was simply this, hey, Paul, where's your letter of recommendation? Like these, these other people, they've come in and they, they come with all these references all these recommendations, where's your letter? Who, who is writing that letter for you? So Paul comes back here in, in, in chapter three and he is saying, I need to have letters or recommendation. I need those for you, I need those from you. Then he says a beautiful phrase here, you're my letter. You are my recommendation. 
Like the fact that Christ is alive in you and the Spirit is dwelling inside of you and you have believed upon Christ, you are my letter of recommendation. You are the letter. You're my letters. If you want evidence of my ministry that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, look at yourselves and look at the good work that God is doing and God has started in you. Secondly, Paul says right here, and the reason there is evidence that you are a letter from Christ is because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. And that is a powerful Work More powerful, in fact, than the work of the law, which is why he references in verse 3, the tablets of stone. Paul is saying the Spirit is, is doing something in your heart, human hearts, into verse 3. He is not doing something like on, on a tablet of stone. He's doing something in your fleshy heart. So today, I'm, I'm going to give you, as we work through this passage, two things. One, a, a truth, and then secondly, a practice or if you will, something for, for your head and then something for your feet tomorrow morning, like something you can do with, with this passage. Or if you want some good SAT words, um, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, like what, what we believe and then how we're gonna practice what, what we believe. So here's the truth from these first three verses. There is a greater power in the Spirit's work than in the law. This is what Paul is conveying to the church of Corinth. This is what the Holy Spirit is conveying to us today. There's a greater power in the Spirit's work than in the law. Now, the law was powerful in that it pointed to God. The, the law was powerful in that it pointed to our need to obey, but it's a lesser power than what God's Spirit does within us. You know, the power of the gospel is not in the gospeler as John Bunyan would write in Pilgrim's Progress. The power of the gospel is not in the gospeler, but it is in the power of the Holy Spirit to move the gospel forward in the life of God's people. So this is what Paul is saying. He is saying, I'm not doing a work in you. It is not my ministry that's doing a work in you. It's the spirit of the living God that's doing a work in your heart. So here's the truth, Highland. There is a greater power in the spirit's work than in you and I just falling back on dusty traditions and falling back on rules and regulations. So here's the practice, here's the truth, here comes the practice. Here's how we can apply this, and I made these in first person for you to hold on to. So I surrender to the Holy Spirit's work in my life, and I will resist trying to manage his work. Yeah. I think that's probably where a lot of us land. We, we want to tell the Holy Spirit, I wanna work, but you need to do it this way. And I want you to do something in my heart, but only to this limit. Uh, you need to stay inside my, my, little, uh, my little box. So the practice then is I surrender to the Holy Spirit's work in my life. You're not surrendering to rules. You're not surrendering to, to, to ritual. You're surrendering to the person of the Holy Spirit as he does his work in your heart. And you're gonna resist trying to manage his work because anytime you try to take over the Spirit's work, you just fall back on rules. You just fall back on on rituals, you fall back on religiosity, you fall back on regulations, and those things are powerless compared to the Spirit's work in our life. That's why we see in verse three, the Spirit of the living God is writing, verse three, in the tablets and on the tablets of human hearts. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So we see here the old covenant, as wonderful as it was, as glorious as it was, merely showed us that we had a need for a savior. 
The old covenant was really just symbols. It was all symbolic, all those sacrifices, all of those washings, all of those ceremonies, circumcision, all of that was symbolic, but it was not real, but it pointed to a greater reality. Let, let me kind of unpack that for you. The, the repeated sacrifices in, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the repeated sacrifices of the animals that pointed us to the real need that we had of a cross, a final cross, a final sacrifice, a permanent cross, if you would. The ceremonial washings of, of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, they were pointing to us our real need to be cleansed forever, to be cleansed permanently. The external sign of, of, of circumcision in, in the Old Covenant, it pointed us to this need that we have to have a true internal change. The value of, of a human high priest in, in the Old Covenant who had an end date because they were gonna die pointed us to the need of a great high priest who has no end date because he's God. So, see, you can't make the symbol equal to the reality. This is what Paul is saying right here. If you make the symbol the means of your salvation, you have hopelessly fallen short of what true salvation is. A symbol of bread doesn't fill you up like real bread. A, a picture of water does not satisfy you like, like real water does. But many in Corinth were still leaning on these symbols of salvation and not the true salvation that is found in the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus. And Paul knew that, which is why Paul is addressing this. The work of the Spirit in true salvation, verse six, it brings life. But the work of the old covenant, which was merely symbolic and had no substance to it, the work of the old covenant, it says very clearly in verse six, it leads to death. So what is this new covenant that we see mentioned here in verse six? The word covenant simply means a, a promise. So the new covenant is this promise of salvation, which means complete forgiveness of all of your sin made possible through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is God's new promise here. God promised to take away your sin, to remember your sin no more, to throw your sin as far as the east is from the west, to completely and totally forgive your sin because of what Jesus Christ, his son, did on the cross. That's the new promise. That's the new covenant. In fact, that's the gospel. So here's the truth for you who are taking notes on the truth and the practice. Here's the truth from those verses. The truth is this, the new covenant is a promise, a permanent salvation and complete forgiveness. The, the, the truth of this is that the new covenant or the new testament, if you want to, or the new testimony of God, uh, all of you who are daughters and sons of God in this room, you're in Christ Jesus, you are a New Testament believer. So the new covenant is a promise of a permanent salvation and a complete forgiveness. And let me tell you why that's so much better than what the old, old covenant promised because the old covenant could not promise either one of those things. The old covenant could not promise a salvation that was permanent, nor could it promise a forgiveness that was complete because in the old covenant, your salvation was sitting upon your ability to follow all the rules, to follow all the rituals, to follow all the ceremonies. And your forgiveness was temporary because of the method of that forgiveness, which was a regular sacrifice of animals, which made Hebrews chapter 10, that the worshiper understand year after year that they weren't truly clean. They weren't completely forgiven. So if that's the truth of what we read just in, here's the practice. Here's what this means for your life tomorrow morning. I don't need to remind God of sins he has forgiven me of in my life. I am fully pardoned. 
You see, Christian, when you are forgiven through the blood and the sacrifice, the permanent sacrifice once and for all of Jesus Christ on the cross, that forgiveness for you was immediate, it was complete, and it was sufficient. It was enough. So your sins, your sins are not being stored away somewhere in in the record files of God. Your sins are not being stored away somewhere in the memory of God. God has remembered your sin no more because when he forgave you through Christ Jesus, that forgiveness was absolutely complete and now your salvation is absolutely permanent. That's the truth, that's the practice. Second Corinthians chapter three, let's pick it up in verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will be made permanent. It will have glory. Did you notice we just read glory 10 times in those five verses? I think the Lord might be trying to tell us something. The word glory in the New Testament, the word glory in Greek is, is the word doxa. Uh, we get our word doxology from that. It just means praise and, and, and honor and majesty and, and brilliance. But Paul is actually referencing the word glory in the Old Testament. He's talking about the glory of the Old Testament. That's a different word because, well, one, it's a different language. It's Hebrew, but that's the word havod. And havod has a much more robust definition than, than doxa. Havod means the weightiness of God. It, it means his incredible, awesome, tangible presence. And so Paul is referencing back to the havod of the Old Testament. In fact, such weightiness that it made Moses' face begin to glow. Uh, Paul is actually saying here that the old way was glorious. Now hold on for just a second. He said it was glorious. He says that in verse seven. He says that in verse nine. He says that in verse 10. He says that in verse 11. That the old covenant, it was glorious, but it was less glorious than the new way. The old covenant was glorious, but not as glorious as the new covenant. And you and I get a new covenant believer. So what's the difference? You see it, you see it in seven and 11 not the convenience store, but in the verses, verse seven and verse 11, it says here that that glory, the Havod glory that was shining on Moses's face, the Havod glory of the Old Testament, it was, you see this phrase, verse seven, verse 11, it was being brought to an end. Now, Paul references here in verse seven, he's gonna mention it later on as well in our next passage, Moses's face of glory. So let's get to that story. You don't have to turn there. You do see it on the screen behind me though. It's in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through through 35. This was Moses coming off of Mount Sinai after having received for the second time now because he destroyed the first one, come down for the second time now with the tablets of stone, the 10 commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, so he's carrying them down now, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with The Lord, that should be all caps. That's his name. That's Yahweh. He had spoken with Yahweh. Quick time out. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That he didn't even realize the havod, weighty, awesome, intense, glorious glory of God was on his face. 
There are some people in my life, I imagine there's some people in your life, when you're around them, you just feel close to the glory of God. God's love just comes through them. God's grace comes through them. God's, God's presence just comes through them. And I, I wonder, of all these people that are registering in my mind right now that I just, when I'm around them, I feel very close to God. I wonder if they even realize that God's glory is just kind of all over them. Moses did not even realize that. I guess the opposite is true also. People who are pretty proud that they have the glory of God on them probably don't have the glory of God on them. Moses did not even realize that the glory of God, that was just a free sermon that has nothing to do with this. Verse, verse 30, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands that Yahweh had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. We're gonna find out later on in 2 Corinthians why he had a veil on his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what had been commanded. And they saw that his face again was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord, with, with Yahweh. Let's step back and see the, the big truth of this. The big truth is that permanent glory is better than passing glory. And, and Christian, this is what we now have. We now have the permanent glory of God. Anything that's good, you want it to be permanent. Anything that's truly good is better to have on a permanent level and not a passing level. But we see here in, in verse 11 that the old covenant had God's glory beginning to pass away. It was beginning to, to diminish. But now in the new covenant, that glory of God, it stays, it rests permanently on his people. So permanent glory, we can see the big truth here, permanent glory is better than passing glory. And there was a passing glory in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, but now there's a permanent glory in Christ Jesus in the New Covenant. So let's put this into practice. Here's the practice. I have the permanent glory of God in my life. I can live in assurance and security, not fear. We see now why the people of the Old Testament was so fearful all the time because God's presence would come and it would go. God's glory was, was always passing. Remember the story of, of, of Moses and God went by him and hid him in the cleft of a rock and, and, and Moses barely got to see even a glimpse of the glory of God as it passed by. New Testament Christian, this is good news. The glory of God does not pass by you. The glory of God remains permanently with you. And so the practice of that, if you wanna take that home on a Monday morning for tomorrow morning, is that you can understand this, you can believe this. I have the permanent glory of God. I have it better than Moses. He had to deal with the passing glory of God, but we have the permanent glory of God. Because of that, you and I can live in this blessed assurance. We can live in this security and not fear because most of our fears are based on something or someone being taken away from us. Most of us are fearful because we're afraid our friends are gonna leave us or our spouse will leave us, or our spouse will pass away. And that creates this fear, this angst. Our, our, our money will be gone, our money will leave. Our, our job that we like will, will be gone. We'll be, that job will be taken away from us. We become very fearful when we begin to realize that everything around us probably can be taken, except now we see that the glory of God in our lives cannot be taken because his permanent glory is so much better than his passing glory. We can build our lives upon that glory and that brings us confidence that brings us assurance 
in Christ. Now, Paul expands upon that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 12 with me. Since we have such a hope, what's the hope? We have permanent glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, and here's why he put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So let me just put a pause real quick. If you were taught or you thought from Exodus chapter 34 that Moses was just being very nice and trying not to scare his friends with the glory, New Testament gives us a little bit deeper of the story. Moses was covering his face because the glory was fleeting. The glory was, was passing. And whether he was embarrassed by that and as a leader did not want anybody to know that the glory was no longer there or the glory was fading, or maybe even some have suggested he was trying to protect the glory of God as if the glory of God needed protection, that he put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not see that that glory was actually fleeting, that glory was actually diminishing. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains and it's unlifted because only, oh, this is so good, <laughs> only through Christ is that veil taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, now we get the rest of that story. Verse 13, Moses was covering his face with the veil because the glory was fading. Remember earlier that glory was, was passing. We saw that same thing in verse seven. The glory was being brought to an end, which is a reminder, Highland, that the glory of the law was never intended to be permanent. This is so important. Moses' face shone. It was fading, but his face was shining as a mere reflection of the glory of God. So he would meet in the presence of Yahweh. In fact, he was the only one, of course, allowed to do so. He would meet in the presence of the Lord and his face would begin to radiate, but that was only because of the reflection of God's glory. This is so, so good. The glory of God now, New Testament Christian, resides within you. Moses once on the exterior had to look up or look over at the glory of God. But now as New Testament believers, we have the interior glory of God taking up residence in us. And because of that, we experience a greater glory. Not that God is more glorious in the New Testament than he was in the Old Testament, but we can now experience a greater glory of God because we, Christians, we are now the place in which his glory resides. Note takers, write this down, this is good. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people, but now he has a people for his temple. This is where everything switched. In the Old Testament, God would dwell in the tent of meeting or he would dwell in the tabernacle. He would dwell in the Holy of Holies in the temple. But now that's, that's old covenant. Now as new covenant people, as New Testament Christians, God takes up his residence in us. This is why Paul's gonna tell the church of Corinth, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the old covenant, God was looking for a temple for his people, but now he has a people for his temple. So here's the truth. Look for the upper, upper truth here. It's simply this. God's glory is now permanently placed in a Christian. God's glory that was once in the tent of meeting, that was once in the tabernacle, which was once in the holy of holies in the temple, we are now the temple. 
We are now the temple, the building of the Holy Spirit. So God's glory is now permanently placed in a Christian. So we no longer have this exterior removed view of God's glory. We have a permanent interior dwelling of the glory of God. Now that, that's high esoteric truth. Let me give you something you can build your life on tomorrow morning. Here it is in first person. God's glory is now within me. There's no veil. And with such a hope, I am very bold before God and before others. Very bold, that's what it says in, in, in verse 12. And so we see in the old covenant, God's glory was always passing. It was not permanent. It was exterior, not interior. Now as New Testament believers, God's glory is within us. There's no veil. That veil has been removed. Remember we saw just then, when you turn to Jesus, when you turn to Christ as Lord, that veil is lifted. And with such a hope, I am very bold before God. I am very bold before others because now I can come into the presence of God. I'm not trying to hide anything from him. Nothing is hidden from God. We come in with this confidence because now we're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. And the glory of God is within you. So you enter that throne room, sister and brother, with great confidence, not with arrogance. Oh, please don't go into his throne room with arrogance or with pride or a handful of your works, but come in with boldness because of what Christ has done for you. At the cross, you gave Jesus all of your sin and Jesus gave you all of his right standing with God gave you all of his righteousness. I love the Tim Keller quote when he says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the child of that king. And that is the access that we have now. God's glory within us. We now have this, this ability. This is our great hope. We can be very bold before God. See how we have that boldness because we have that kind of access. Let's wrap this up. Verse 17 of chapter three. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, Christian, we all with unveiled face. Remember, it's been lifted when we turn to Jesus. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Let's back up and give the, get the big high truth here. The high truth is the way we become more like Christ is looking at Christ. It's not by keeping the rules. And if we have thought, I have thought, you have thought, that if I can just keep more rules, maybe I can look more like Jesus, we get a great explanation here, a quick explanation of how you and I grow into the image of, of Christ. And that is by beholding him, looking at him, by beholding him, the more you, you look at Jesus, your heart is fixed on him, your mind is fixed on him, you treasure him, you desire him, you love him, you worship him. The more we look at Jesus, the more that we come, become like him. Robert, Robert McShann said, for every one look at yourself, you should take 10 looks at Christ. I think all of us in here could probably say we are professional navel gazers. Like we just look at ourselves all the time, right? Kind of look at our lives, our problems, our circumstances, our gifts, our lack of gifts, what we have, what we don't have, who we are. We just, we are so good at looking at ourselves. Let me just tell you, you'll grow in depression if you just look at yourself all the time. You will grow in anxiety if you just look at yourself all the time. We have the key right here so quickly. Maybe not easy to live out, but simple to understand. We become like Christ by beholding Christ. So let's make this practical. The Holy Spirit frees me to grow increasingly 
into the glory of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. This is what this chapter is about. The, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. It's not rules. It's not image management. It's not dry traditions and, and, and regulations that causes us, verse 18, to be transformed into or to grow into from one degree to the next degree in the glory of Jesus. How do we grow? We, we behold Jesus. Our lives, our hearts, our minds are fixed on him. And I love this. Then then we can obey the word of God. Then we can obey what I like to call the New Testament law. This is really important for us to understand. Just because you're free in Christ does not make you free to disobey. In fact, just the opposite. Because you're free in Christ, you're now free and empowered to obey. But we don't become like Christ by following all the New Testament law. We're able to follow the New Testament law as we keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on Jesus. We treasure him, we love him, we desire him, we worship him. Otherwise, it's legalism. You don't become like Jesus by following the rules. You become like Jesus by fixing your eyes on him. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Father, thank you for the authority of your word. We thank you for the the, the power-packed punch of chapter three, Lord. It's, it's, it's weighty, it's heavy, but it's, it's liberating. It's so freeing to, to know the work of the Spirit in our lives is so much more powerful than the law and following the, trying to follow rules and, and ceremonies and, and ritual. Jesus, we thank you that, that because of the cross, because of your death, because of your resurrection, the glory of God is not passing us. It is permanent within us. We don't take some exterior view of the glory of God as he passes by while we're in a cleft in the rock, but, but now we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The permanent glory of God residing in his people. That's why we can be very bold as we come, as we sing, as we pray, as we confess. Father, thank you for the richness of your word to us today. Thank you for the power of the Spirit. It's the name of Jesus that we, that we pray and we believe. Amen. Maybe with that boldness you now understand you have in Christ, Christian. Perhaps you'd wanna come during this song and kneel here at the front and just maybe practice a few of these sentences before the Lord. I, I am now free to become like Jesus increasingly this week because of the Spirit's work, not, not the work of the law, not the work of rules. Because of the, the Spirit's work in my, in my life, I can surrender now to everything that the Spirit wants to do in my life. I don't wanna manage the Spirit. I want my life to be open to the work of the Spirit. Maybe you'd wanna come and just kneel here and say, God, I, I am so sorry. I've been reminding you of all the sins you've already forgiven. I'm gonna live in the freedom of my complete forgiveness. I'm gonna live in the freedom of my immediate forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We'll also have some staff members here at the front. Maybe you wanna come and pray with one of us. We'd love to pray for you, pray over you, encourage you in prayer. I think I say this about five or six times a year. I'll tell you what I don't want for Highland. And honestly, I don't want for your heart at all is for you and I just to become stoic, still Christians. We just kind of stare at a screen with our hands in our pocket. When there's a place for you to come and kneel before the King of Kings, that there's an opportunity for you to sing aloud to the, to the God of your salvation, 
an opportunity for you to come and pray with, with others. In fact, scripture says in the book of Colossians, we are to devote ourselves as the people of God to prayer. So let, let's don't slip back into stoicism. Let's don't slip back into just being observers. Let's participate in all that God desires to do in this place and in your heart and in the heart of your neighbor. And if slipping out of, of the aisle or out of your row feels too much to come down here and pray, maybe you just wanna to turn around where you are and just hit your knees in that chair and just practice some of these confessions of a believer that's been set free by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We're gonna sing two songs, so you have plenty of time to pray. Let's sing, and won't you please come?